The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. But we're talking about Romans, stability in Christ, how God stabilizes believers. And this is going to relate in part, we're not going to look at everything on this because there's a, there's a lot of things in the book of Romans related to this topic. So this is your outline. What I have up here is the outline if you want to put it down. And if you want just kind of an overview outline of Romans, that's what we're going to hit here towards the beginning. But we're going to start by turning to Romans chapter 1. And I want to make a connection here in the book of Romans and if you take notes, this would be a good place to make a note in the margin here with chapter 16, which we're going to look at. And I have both texts up here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. <clears throat> Romans 1 and verse 11. Paul says, For I long to see you in order that I might impart some spiritual gift or a spiritual thing to you that you may be established. And that word established, you, you, don't, you don't read Greek, that's okay. But it's the word sterizo. Now the importance of that word is, is if you turn over to chapter 16 at the end of this book, Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, as Paul is closing this letter off, he's going to come back to this word again. And he says, now to him who is able to establish you. In other words, God's the one that establishes you, but Paul said, but there's something spiritual I want to give to you. And I would say that that spiritual thing is not a spiritual gift, like a gift of pastor, teacher, a gift of evangelist or something. I, because that word spiritual actually occurs, that same form of that word, a spiritual thing, occurs quite a few times in the New Testament. And most of the time, and it's not about a spiritual gift. It's just something that is characterized as being spiritual which means it's something you have to use your spirit to relate to because you can't feel it. You can't taste it. You can't smell it. Okay? It's something in the realm of your spirit. You don't even feel it in terms of your emotions and feelings. I just don't feel. I just don't feel the love. You know, that kind of thing. Well, I don't feel the spirit. No, you're not. It's a truth that you're going to relate to. And he tells us here in Romans 16, he says that God is the one that is able to establish you. To the one that is able to establish you. Same Greek word, according to my gospel. So there's something about Paul's gospel that is going to establish you. And secondly, the preaching or the proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. And I don't think this is proclamation for an unsaved person. This is proclamation for you as a believer, knowing who Jesus Christ is right now. And then, according to the revelation of a mystery. There's a mystery that you need to know. There's a mystery that you need to know to really become established. And this all sounds very complicated, but it's not complicated in, the, in, in, in reality. Because as Paul says to the Corinthians, there is a simplicity that exists in Christ. In other words, the essence, all aspects of the Christian life, being spiritual, relating to who you are in Christ, dealing with your flesh, dealing with Satan, and dealing with the world, all of them rest, at least in part, on understanding who Christ is right now and who you are in relationship to him. So in reality, it's a, it's a very simple thing. And it's the thing, uh, this, this struck me. I was having a conversation with somebody just a couple weeks ago, and, and I took him to that passage in um, uh, Acts 13, where Paul walks through the gospel 
in the synagogue of Pisidia Antioch. And when they, they break up, they said, hey, we're gonna, we want to meet with you next week, Paul, and we want to hear from you again. So let's schedule next Saturday we're going to meet again with you. And they leave, and it says that there's some people that followed Paul and Barnabas as they left the synagogue. And it says that Paul and Barnabas were encouraging them to continue in the grace of God. It almost it sounds the way you read it in the, in the English Bible as though they're leaving the synagogue and there's some people following. Paul says, hey, stick with the grace of God. See you next Saturday. I'm going to go milk tents all week. But the word that they were encouraging in the Greek is an imperfect tense, meaning this is what they were doing from the breaking of the, of the synagogue on that one Saturday till they met again the next Saturday. In between, Paul is taking time with these, I would say, new believers, people that actually believe that gospel message he proclaimed, and He's talking to them about the grace of God and telling them how to continue in that grace. Which, what did that mean? That meant that when Paul, when they, Paul, and this is, this is why I picture it, and this is Tim's take on it. Don't, don't quote and say, there's a verse that says this. There is not a verse that says this. This is the way I'm interpreting what Luke tells us about Paul's account. But I think if you met with Paul, if you would have been in that synagogue that day, that and you heard Paul say this, you follow him out, I'm going to bet that before you put your head on your pillow, Paul has sat down and he has had your first Bible study with you. And that Bible study is essentially, this is who Christ is for you right now, and this is who you are in him. And he has told you at least a couple of the things that we talk about in here. Josh has been going over, what did I tell you? I looked at this like two years, you've been going through things on us in Christ. I was looking back in my notebooks, I think. Which tells you, I mean, you can spend a lot of time on this, flushing this all out. It's, it's, it permeates the New Testament. And so Paul's telling them, you imagine what that is like? You're a brand new believer. And instead of waiting till, like I've told you my story, and getting saved at five and you're 20 years old is the first time you actually start to discover, I have, I have a standing in Christ. This is what God says about me. These are the things that are true. And you live 15 years going, this Christian life is nuts. I don't know how to live this. I'm so frustrated with this stinking sin nature. And maybe you never had that experience, but that was mine. When I found that, I'm telling you, you come to understand who you are in Christ, it is like a breath of fresh air. Or in Tim's world, it's like a delicious hot cup of coffee at 8.30 in the morning. It's, it's just like, oh, this is wonderful. I shouldn't compare it to coffee. It's not that good. It's, it's much better than coffee. Coffee's not close to being that good. Knowing who you are in Christ. And I'm convinced that Paul taught those people that out the door. He didn't wait five days. He didn't wait a week. He told them right off the bat, you need to know this because you can't hardly take a step. You really can't take a step in the Christian life if you don't know something about who he is. And this is what Paul says in here when he says this preaching or this proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. A lot of Christians can't tell you boo about who Jesus Christ is. What's Jesus Christ? Oh, he's up in heaven and he's looking down at me and he loves me. And yeah, sure, but what does that look like, actually? Tell me what that actually looks like. Like if I were to ask the wives in here, hey, tell me, does your husband love you? Oh, yeah, he loves me. Tell me how. What does that look like? You see what the, the point? They have the kids, do your parents love you? Yes, my parents. What does that look like? 
How do you demonstrate? How do they demonstrate love? We want to know who is Jesus Christ? What is he doing right now? So these, this is the point. Paul says, my purpose, the reason I want to come to you is so that you can be stabilized. And I believe that spiritual thing is really what you kind of have laid out in the book of Romans. And Paul, at the end of this book, closes it by saying, God's the one that will stabilize you. So here's a rundown on Romans. I'm not going to go through these chapters, but chapters one through three, everybody's equally lost. You're never going to be stable if you think, well, it took more to save Ben than it took to save me. <laughs> I mean, obviously. No, no, it did not. Thank you for letting me pick on you there. And then all are saved equally by, through faith alone. In fact, the wonderful thing about the saved alone passage is he gives us three examples. Abraham before the law, David under the law, and then us without law. And then all have peace with God. But 512 then brings down to this point, but what about the sin nature? Because that becomes the problem. How do you really enjoy peace with God and access to God because of this stupid, stinking sin nature we're stuck with? Well, Christ also died for the sin nature too, Romans 6.10. Chapter 7 is, yeah, the sin nature is a problem. Paul admits that in chapter 7. In fact, actually, chapter 7 could have a subtitle, The Law Won't Help. <laughs> All the law is going to do is show you that you got a problem. It's like Asher. Does he know he has something going on? Sure he does. What's the MRI going to do, fix it? No, it's just going to show you that you got a problem. It'll maybe help the doctor say this is what we can do for it. But we all know that an x-ray, MRI doesn't fix the problem. It just helps identify, and that's what the law did. And then chapter 8, verse 1, you're not condemned in Christ. And chapter 8, verse 2, the Spirit will lead you to freedom. We move on from there. Chapter 835, I think these two verses, 835 and 839, are important. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love, which means nothing can get you, get him to stop interceding for you, which he just said in the verse before that. And the last one, nothing could separate you from God's love, which is nothing can get God to stop saying that you're in Christ, which is what he says. God's love to you in Christ, he says there in verse 30. Then 9 through 11, even Israel isn't separated from God's love. That's really what chapters 9 through 11 are about. Just to set these people straight and going, well, what, you say we can't be separated from God's love. Well, what about Israel? And he says, they're not even separated from God's love. And he even says that. He even says that. Have they fallen to the point that they can't get up? No. He says that. Chapters 9 through 11. Then 12 through 15 essentially is you. How can you be a help for others becoming stable? What can you do to help others become stable? And there's a lot of issues in chapters 12. And then chapter 16 is are the greetings and closing. So that it just there's a kind of quick overview of what's going on in Romans. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, uh, um, we uh, didn't look at this verse this morning. Jim didn't get, go back because the, the lesson didn't take us back this far. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, it says, for a quality or a quality of God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, the ones that are holding down the truth by means of unrighteousness. And what it, that really is saying is, you know, out there, there are things that happen at times that really are demonstrations of God's anger. But he's not pouring out his undiluted anger like you have during what we call Daniel's 70th week in the Great Tribulation. That's God's, he says, that's his wrath undiluted, unmixed. But at times, there are displays 
And Paul says that. There are displays of God's anger in time. In fact, I think an example of that anger is exactly what Jim went over when he says he turned them over. He turned them over. You people think that's good. You, ex you gave me freedom. That freedom didn't go anywhere good. It just brought disaster on their lives. And Paul indicated that. So, And the result, the end conclusion of that is then in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, a verse most of you are very familiar with, but it says, we're all in the same boat for all sinned. There's nobody that didn't. All sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why did we all sin? Because we all sinned in Adam. God counted every one of us to be there with Adam engaged in that act. As we've said before, and some people might disagree with me, but if God had created Tim and Peg, put us in the garden, I would have gone, yeah, I would have done that. I think a lot of people, I've talked to people, go, oh, no, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, well, you really have a better estimate of yourself than I do. I probably would pull, pull the same thing that, that Adam did, okay? And I would do that. But we all sinned. And so as a result, we all come short of God's glory. That is, we don't measure up to God's opinion of what his creation was supposed to be. <laughs> Not even close. When you look at creation out there, in answer to one of the questions, uh, why is there suffering in the world? It's because God had, God had plans, we might say, for how this creation was supposed to be. And we're looking at the result of us going, no, we ain't going to do it that way. <laughs> we ain't going to do it that way. Any of you ever had kids that say, the kid says, I want to do this. Well, let me show you how to do it. No, 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 I can do it on my own. Okay, we'll see how that goes for you. And when they choose to do it their way, you're kind of like, yeah, these pancakes are really good. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I think, I was trying to think if it was one of our girls that made pancakes one time or was somebody else, some other kids, we were at some place and they did it and they dumped like, And did he, he was a half a cup of salt? I was thinking it was a half a cup of, of baking soda. I knew it was just, it made them salty. Just, oh, yeah. Nobody wants salty pancakes, okay, like that. So we mess things up when we choose not to do it the way that God planned, okay? But we come to Romans chapter 4, and this is one of my favorite verses. This is a verse for you and I as believers, but it's a verse I use in sharing the gospel with people if, it's, if, if it becomes appropriate. Romans 4 verse 5, But to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly. I was like that. He declares righteous the ungodly. It doesn't say he declares righteous good people. Why? Well, because back in chapter 3 he said there are none. But he declares righteous the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. To him who doesn't work but believes. That right there flies in the face of all religion. And it's one of the reasons Christianity is not a religion. Because religion is all about work and duty. It's all about what you have to do. And I still remember... Uh, uh, listening, well, listening, I was thinking it was a document, but I'm getting it mixed up. Listening to a Mormon missionary on my step, and he told me it would, it would not be fair for God to not let us work for our salvation. And I was like, why? Because it's only fair. Because nothing is valuable unless you can work for it. And I said, what if I can't do anything valuable? Then for God to do it for me, that's the valuable thing. Well, I just don't see it that way. <laughs> And I showed him, I was, we were, it was because we were talking about this verse. I said, but this verse says, God declares righteous those who don't work but believe. Plain and simple. And then he gives us the three examples, which we already talked about. Back up in verse 4, Abraham by faith, 
David under the law, and Abraham's before the law, David's under the law, and then you and I, I said not under law. Originally, I was going to put down before or after the law, but instead of saying after law, I just said not under law. Just put it that way. We're not under law. It's not that we're after the law. And he talks about all this. He gives those three examples. All of us are declared righteous by faith. And the result of that is, if you haven't seen this verse for a while, but chapter 4 and verse 16, this is why he does it by faith. He says, therefore, it is from faith so that it might be according to grace in order that the promise might be firm. See, if the promise, if the promise is based on your works, how firm is that? Well, it all depends on how good your works are, right? Well, most of us know that our works are going to come short very plainly. Some of us don't want to recognize that. It may take time. But he says it's from faith so that it can be according to grace. Now, the, the, the important point of all this is that it brings us then to chapter 5 and verse 1, a verse probably most of you learned early in your Christian life. Therefore, being justified or declared righteous from faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. The war with God's over on our part. We may not always act like that, but the war with God is over. So was up to this point, it's been you're all equally lost. Number two, you're all equally saved by faith, which means that you all equally are saved by grace. And that was true of everybody in history that's been saved. Back people in Abraham's time, people living under the law like David, and all of us that have lived not under law in the time since. This is true for all, and as a result, for you and I, now for you and I, we now have peace with God. I don't know that we can say this was true for everybody prior to us as believers, if they understood and appreciated this in the same way we do, but I know that this is something that is definitely true for you and I as New Testament believers, but then that brings up the still the question, okay, we got peace with God, but what about the sin nature? Because that's, and I started off with my, a little bit of my story, that's a thing in my life, and I've you guys have heard me tell this. How many times? I figured, I, I believed in eternal security. I knew I was going to heaven, but I was pretty dang sure. Can you say dang in a sermon? I just did. I was pretty dang sure. Okay, we said it two times for good measure. I was pretty sure that I got to heaven and God was going to say, yeah, you got in here, but I'm, you're going to stand against the wall. Because I've told you that's my dad would do that with us with kids. You go stand, the party's going on, all the friends or cousins are having fun, but you're going to stand with your nose in the corner because you were naughty. And you're going to stand there for five or ten minutes. And then, we're going to have, then we'll have a conversation afterwards. So I figured this is what God was going to do with me. I just, you kind of take life on earth, put it up there in heaven, and say, well, God's going to do that with me. And I think some of that was because you, we sometimes were taught, you're going to get to heaven, and guess what? You were naughty down here, God's going to have to deal with you up there. And that's a whole other Bible study. But the sin nature is the problem. Was ever Satan involved in the world? Sure they were. But a lot of times it had to do with my own sin nature. My own sin nature that was like my sister, who I do love, but she could sometimes really get under my skin. It was really easy to go, knock it off, and smack her. And guess what? Dad didn't see her egging me on. He only saw me do this. <laughs> That's a sin nature lashing out, see? And we could give, I could ask you all to share an illustration where in your childhood growing up, you can remember a time you, you, you and your sin nature acted out in some way that you probably got in trouble for. Even if your parents were Christians, they probably said that was unacceptable, right? Did even those of you who didn't grow up in Christian homes, did your parents have things that were unacceptable? 
that you got in trouble for? Okay. So, we have this problem with the sin nature. But the problem is, and let's look at these verses. I love these verses here in Romans chapter 5. Let's look at verse... Uh, Romans chapter 5, let's go to verse 6. I, I just want to see if I hit all these. I didn't do these. Okay. Romans 5 and verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for what kind of people? What? The ungodly. And you want to you want to just put ungodly and just really raw term? It's a term. If the term godly in our English Bibles means you honor God well, the term ungodly was a term that meant you dishonored God. Put it another way, you thumbed your nose at him. You flipped him the bird. You told him to fill in some expletive. Seriously, this is what's going on when he says, these are the kind of people he died for. Go down to verse 7. <coughs> for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still, what? Sinners. Sinners. Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be good people. He didn't come even people that were trying hard. It's while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, what kind of people? Enemies. When you think of enemies, you think of just two people that kind of go, stop that, stop that. Is that what you think of? No. Right now you think of Russia and Ukraine, and bombs being launched back and forth, shots being taken from behind supposedly safe things. You think of people strapping bombs on their chest and walking into marketplaces and going off in the people that they hate, killing themselves to destroy people that they hate. I mean, this is what we think of when we think of enemies. But he says, that's what you and I were. We were ones who were hostile against God. So keep in mind, when he started at the beginning of this letter telling us that we're all equally lost, one of the things that's true of all of us, we were all enemies of God. And you go, well, I don't know that I was really hating God that much. Guaranteed, you were hating God. You just didn't know. If you, were, if you would have been confronted with the truth and reality of God before you were saved, you would have looked at that and said, well, wait a second. God's not a fair guy. He's not a nice guy. How can he punish those people like that? How can he do that thing? Oh, God just causes trouble. In the... you got all kinds of things that go on in the minds of a person that uh, is a God-hater. And so he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So he comes to this passage and he's backing up and he goes, you have a problem with the sin nature? Do you remember? He died for you when you were ungodly. He died for you when you were a sinner. He reconciled you through the death of his son when you were his enemy. Weak. And weak. Yeah, he did say weak in that first one in verse 6. So there was nothing about you that was noble. There was nothing about you that God says, Oh, I want Tim on my team because he's great. Do you know how he does those spiritual passes? He goes for those long bombs and he always nails his spiritual receiver. Baloney. God doesn't look at it that way. I had nothing to offer. None of us had anything to offer. Uh, which I, I think is, I, I just point this out. I've heard different people say this. You know, they're, they're, I listened to a, I listened to this on the radio, and this is probably 25 years ago, but they were talking about sharing the gospel with, and I think it was an NBA basketball player. 
some guy, and they, this person was asking questions, and I don't remember the context, but I kind of thought it was on focus on the family, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. So I don't want to throw them under the bus here. But the person that was talking about says, could you imagine what that person could do for the kingdom of God if they got saved? That would be like saying, we get, if you get a big personality saved, they can do a lot. But you know, you Joe Smo, God doesn't, he doesn't need you as much as he needs those guys. But see, God never saves anybody because they're at the top of their game. Because they're a somebody. In fact, as Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 1, he saves nobodies. Most of us are nobodies. So, with all of this then, he comes over to, um, and uh, see, I'm trying to look at my notes and then follow what I put up here for this stuff. But let's go to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to put in at verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, the reason for this is, is because at the end of chapter 5, he says, you know what? Every, we all got sin natures. We all got sin natures, and I'm not for sure if, where if I put this in my slides here. I probably did, and I forgot this, but I want you to go back up to chapter 5 and verse 12, because I want you to look at this. This is where he tells you the sin nature came from, and the problem is, is and we've been over this here at our church, so most of you, I think, should remember this, hopefully, but this verse, the way it's translated in almost all of our English Bibles that I'm aware of, it doesn't tell you what Paul's getting at. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, who's that one man? Take a guess. Adam. Adam. Sin entered the world. Now, it just sounds like just sin came into the world. But that's not what it says. In the Greek, it's the sin. He's talking about the sin nature. Through one man, the sin nature entered, shall we say. When he says into the world, it's kind of like saying into the human race. And the death through sin. It's not just that people die. He's talking specifically about spiritual death. Through the sin nature <coughs> came the death, the spiritual death in that way. And so that the death, the spiritual death, being separated from God, that this happened, it spread to all men because all sinned. Again, same exact expression in the Greek that he said in chapter 323, that in Adam we all sinned. And so at the end of chapter 5, he's going to tell us that one of the things that God did was he brought the law in. And you can listen to people all day long talk about how great the Mosaic law is. And you know what? Paul even says the Mosaic law was holy, righteous, and good. It says that in chapter 7. But Paul doesn't say, the Mosaic law is the most wonderful thing God ever gave, and it is the pinnacle of righteousness, and it is the character of God. Because you know what he actually tells us in chapter 3? There is a righteousness of God that is not related to the law. The law is not the pinnacle of God's righteousness in any way. He actually tells us that the law came in that the trespass, not transgression, but the trespass might increase. In other words, the very main reason, and Paul it reiterates this for us more than once in the New Testament, God gave the law to demonstrate to us that we're sinners that we cannot do, and yet Christians can't read the plain statement. They, they can't get away. They're so enamored with this law that they cannot come to it and say, its purpose was to show that we're sinners. My wife had to go through some x-rays and treatment some years ago because they thought she had cancer, and they looked at this, and then they did a biopsy, and all those things, there's a part of you that hates all that. Because you know what in the end it tells you? Yeah, she had cancer. I, none of us wanted to hear that. I didn't. 
When the doctor told us that, I can tell you, my wife, Peggy knows this. I shook, literally physically shook, probably for better than an hour. I just could not stop shaking. But you know what? If it weren't for that, they wouldn't have known, and they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. And it would have just gone on and gone on. And cancer spreads. That's one of the things they found out. It was a kind that grows. So the law had a good purpose, <laughs> demonstrated we're sinners. It caused the trespass to increase. It doesn't even just say sin increase, it says trespass. Because even if I don't blatantly cross the line, I certainly think about it. I certainly think about crossing that line. Yeah, well, I, I, boy, I should like to, I, but I can't do that. That's a bad thing. Boy, oh, I should like to think about This is the way humanity is. And so people trespass way more than they sin. And he says, but where, and then he says, but where the sin nature increased, probably going to, like I said, these verses probably come up in the slides here in a while, but we've already hit them. But where the sin nature increased, grace abounded even more. In other words, and we've said this before, and this is Tim's paraphrase. It's all this is, just my paraphrase. When the sin nature goes into drive, God's grace goes into overdrive. I think I told you guys this thing, I don't know, a few weeks ago. I don't know how this, this popped up. I'm laying in bed some night. I'm on my iPad. I, we'd watched our nightly farm video that Peg and I tend to watch. And then there's a guy, and they have on there, and they have a Pinto. You guys know what a 1973 Pinto is? Not a car you take to the, not a car you take to the drag strip. But guess what? This guy had put a non-stock engine in this car. And this car would launch, the front wheels would come off, and they had, like, I think four other cars. I made Peg watch these. Four other souped-up hot rods, and it beat every one of them on the stage, which is crazy. This boom! Nobody would expect this. I thought it was just a riot watching this. Yeah, one of them, yeah, this thing was way out there. The one is still spinning its wheels trying to get off the, off, off the, fin or off the, uh, the starting line. Anyway, the reason I say that is because when I think about this idea, when our sin nature goes into to drive, and we might think it's pretty fast and pretty hard and pretty tough, God's grace always will eclipse it in terms of what it can do. But you, it's not a pinto. It's not a pinto. It's not a pinto. Sorry, yeah, I don't want to compare God's... I just compared it to, God's, to a pinto, but it's not. It's so much better. But the point being, you really can't out-sin the grace of God. Your sin nature can't outdo it. And he says that just as the sin nature reigned because of death, even so the grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then some people are going to falsely come along in verse 1 and say, well then, why don't we just get comfortable with the sin nature so that this grace really can abound? It can really take off. We want to watch this, pardon me the illustration again, we want to watch this Pinto tear up the drag strip. And Paul says, no, no. Let it not be. How shall we who died to the sin nature live in it? He goes, died to the sin nature? He says, yeah. Don't you know, verse 3, that all of us who were baptized into Christ, that's not water. We all know that. This is what happened when you believe that the Spirit put you into Christ. And when he put you into Christ, you were put into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism through baptism into death, again, that's spirit baptism, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. But he's telling us here, you were put into the death of Christ. You're also put into his life. We'll save that and we'll touch on that next week when we come back to this. But the whole point is, 
How did God deal with the sin nature? Well, one of the things he did was that Christ died. And doesn't tell us this yet, but let's keep reading in here. Let's go down to verse, well, let's, we'll just read through all this. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, it will also be true that we will be of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our, I would say old man, if you have an NASB like I do, they have, they have old self. But this is the old man. This is who we all were together in Adam. That old man was crucified. That the body, and this would be the body of the sin, referring to the sin nature, the body dominated or characterized by the sin nature might be done away that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, the whole point of this is God's doing something to free you from this slavery or this dominion of the sin nature. For if for he who has died is, NASB says freed from sin, and they try to justify us, but it's a word meaning stands declared righteous. And the reason I say stands declared, not just declared righteous, is it's a perfect tense, meaning it was settled in the past, and it's still true. It's not like, well, I was declared righteous, but today, well, I blew it, so now I'm guilty. Now, God might have to deal with me if I'm acting like a stinker today, but before God, that was established back here. I was declared righteous because of Jesus Christ, and it remains true. And is there freedom that's involved with that? Yeah, but that I don't think is what Paul, I, I think it's misleading to say that is freed from sin. I, but you're separated then, he says, declared righteous from or away from or separated away from the sin. Again, referring to the sin nature. God sees you declared righteous because he sees you separated from the sin nature in this matter. Now let's go keep reading down through here. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is a master over him. And he says death is not a master over him or not a lord over him. That word death is just death, any kind of death. Because Christ, well, let's read verse 10 and we'll put this together. Verse 10. For in that he died, he died to the sin once. Now, how did he die to the sin? In other words, to the sin nature. Christ was without sin. He had no sin nature. But while he's hanging on that cross, the scriptures tell us in the book of Luke, from noon till three in the afternoon, there was darkness over the, all the land. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit had had this eternal fellowship. But for three hours, the Father is counting him to carry my sins and my sinful nature. He counts him, actually, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to become sin, to be sin in my place. And for that period of time, while he's that way, in the same way that you and I do to our fallen state when we come into the world, we're separated from God, so the Father turned his back on the Son. And I know, you've been here in this church, we've gone over this. I still remember the first time I learned this, I was just like, what? I couldn't believe this. this I was in college, I remember at this time. <laughs> Peggy and I were dating, I said, oh man, you know what I just learned? I'd never heard this before. Maybe I had and I hadn't paid attention, okay. But that was the term, it clicked, and I was like, this is incredible. Jesus Christ was counted on the cross to be the sinful creature that I was, not just to carry my acts of sin, but my sinful nature. And that's what that, my God, my God, what have you, why have you forsaken me? That's what that was all about. 
all of a sudden, I mean, lights went on all over the place and stuff that I'd heard over the years that I hadn't gotten. But this is exactly what Paul's point is in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to the sin nature once. And that's why he's able to say back in verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, he no longer dies. Death is not a Lord over him. That's why he doesn't use the death, just spiritual death, no kind of death. Because Christ not only died spiritually while he's alive on the cross, but then he died physically. So when he rose again, death, it, what physical death, spiritual death, it's all done with. No more, ever again. Do you know there's a day coming that that'll be true for you and I? If Christ came back today and we heard him shout and say, hey, all those in Christ, come on up here. Guess what? We would all be, what? Completely liberated from sin. And completely liberated from death. Not just spiritual death, but from physical death. That's something to look forward to. So he says in verse 10 again, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he now lives to God. So you, this is your response to this. See, Paul's trying to answer this question. You got this stinking sin nature. What do we do about this problem? You say I have peace with God, but what about this problem I'm dealing with? You really mean to tell me God's okay with it? He's not, it's not that God's okay with it. It's the fact that God's dealt with it through Jesus Christ who not only just bore the bad things I did, but he bore your nature. So he says to us in verse 11, so in this way, you logically count yourselves to be dead indeed to the sin nature, but living ones to God in Christ Jesus. This is why, this is why Paul said at the beginning of this letter, back in chapter 1 and verse 11, I want to give you a spiritual thing, a spiritual gift. It's something that with your spirit you're going to have to do. I can't feel that I'm a dead one with Christ. Man, my sin nature sometimes is really kicking. But I can, with my spirit, relate to the fact this is what you say is true of me. And I'm going to say it's true of me too, in Christ. Because you see me intimately joined with Christ and sharing in everything he did so that I now have a whole different standing in relationship to you than I used to. And so the last part of it, I'm alive unto God. I'm not unresponsive to God anymore. Remember, I, I was weak. I was ungodly. I was thumbing my nose at God. I, I don't know if that's a bad gesture. I should have maybe done that, but you get the point like that. I'm not doing things to God like that anymore. I, I may sometimes maybe act that, but that's not really my relationship to God. I, I was a sinner, but I'm not a sinner with respect to God anymore in that way. And I'm not. I'm no longer God's enemy. Sometimes I kind of get into it with other people and kind of act a little bit like it, but that's not, none of that defines me anymore. Kind of like what the passage Jim looked at over there in 1 Corinthians 6 today. Such were some of you! but you washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. I always like how those things coalesce. No collusion on our part. It's the Holy Spirit, same teacher that puts all this together. So we put in this together when we're talking about preaching the preaching of Jesus Christ, Romans 16, 25. He died, we died. 
He lives, we live. There's, there are Christians all across the world that this week are going to celebrate the death of Christ. And they're going to celebrate next week the resurrection. And rightly so. And they're going to appreciate it. And I have, I've been there and I still am there. But sadly, there's a lot of us that don't appreciate the fact that when he died, I died with him. When he was raised and lives, I live with him. I lived for 15 years without knowing that. And then I want to go to Romans chapter 8, a verse that even after I'd started learning the Christian life, it was a number of years before this verse. In fact, I honestly think it was I was here in Royal City before this verse really struck me. I remember going over it in seminary, but it wasn't until I was in, here in, in Royal City and still struggling with my sin nature. You'd think, oh, you, shouldn't you be? No. You guess what? Tell your, tell your dying breath, that sin nature is still going to be around. And it's still every once in a while going to try to prod you. It's going to say, hey, how about that, buddy? Have you thought about this? Hey, check out that thing. And it's going to, it's going to be with you. That doesn't mean that you respond to it. I, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this in nature, but I'm very thankful to God that I can see that there's more. There were times in my Christian life I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to get this. I know the truth, but it's like I don't do this very well sometimes. But I'm very thankful that I'm watching God continue to mature me, that this is more common than it used to be for me to really enjoy who I am in Christ and the freedom that's there. But I remember when I came to this verse, Romans 8, 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 8, 1. I said 8, 2, didn't I? 8, 1, yeah. I'm not condemned. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not condemned. Christ bore our condemnation. There's a whole tie-in with that back in chapter 5, but... We can only do so much in, in an hour here. We are free of condemnation now that we are in Christ. And those things, when you let that kind of stuff sink in, it just does wonders for us. I want to turn to cha in chapter 8, and I want to look at these last two verses. And we'll kind of tie this off, unless the Spirit strikes me with one more thing. <laughs> but here in chapter 8, I want you to look uh, let's go down to verse, uh, verse 31. We'll put it in at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he's gone over some things. You're familiar. You can go back and read those. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely, freely or graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now, who's the person listed right after that? Christ Jesus. Do you know that that's actually a legitimate statement about condemnation? Because what did Jesus say about himself in John 5? Does anybody know? He says, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So, after the Son dies and rises again, the son is then the one that actually sits on the judge's seat, which is why scripture calls it for us with regard to our works, not our salvation in any way, shape, or form, the judgment seat of Christ. He evaluates our works and says, we're oh, Burn that up. Get rid of it. 
as Steve, when Steve was here, he called it the reward seat. I don't translate it reward seat because it, there is a judgment. It's an evaluation of our works is what's going on. I do, but I recognize what happens. You know what comes out of there? Rewards! <laughs> so I can see why we go that way. And I used to do that, but I, I just, I'm inclined to, let's just be honest. He's judging or evaluating our works. But then he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to judge the nations down the road. And he's going to judge his people Israel down the road. And then eventually he's going to sit on a great white throne. And he's going to judge all the unsaved dead. So he is the one that entertains accusations. But is he going to condemn you? No, we just saw that back in chapter one or chapter 8, verse 1. Christ Jesus who died? So he died for you and he's going to condemn you now. He, yeah, he's even raised. We've already concluded that we're, we share in that also. Who is even at the right hand of God, which is now where you are as a believer. Who also intercedes for us. I just had to look at this intercession the other day because I was coming back and I was talking to somebody about this on the phone. And that word intercession... The, the background of that word actually meant to strike at a thing. It's actually, the, it's the opposite of the word hamartia. Hamartia meant to miss a mark. It's an intentional missing a mark, but it's missing a mark. And, tu, and, and tucano meant to actually strike right at it. It's a dead shot. Any of you ever dead shots? Get your gun up there. You can hold it out there. Sorry, we're talking about guns, but you know, you aim in there. You get it right on the target. Boom, you don't miss. That's what this is. But he's not shooting at something. He's asking for something, and he's asking for something very specific. He's not just saying, "Hey, God, the Father, Jim needs a little help." The Father says, "What? Oh, just help him." No, he's going to say, "You know what? Jim's got this going on, and this thing, and this thing." And he needs this, this, and this. You're, don't you wish you could be like that? Don't you wish you knew when you've got a problem, you knew exactly how to fix that problem? And if you ever have a problem and you can't figure exactly how to fix it? Like a uh, chest cold? <laughs> you know, what medicine should I take? What herb? What tea should I, you know, whatever. You know, we have no idea. We take, we just, we're, we're, we're just throwing darts in the dark and we're going, that, that didn't work, that didn't work. He doesn't do that. He's asking for things specific. And then that brings us to that next statement, who will separate us from the love of the Christ? What's going to get him to stop being your position at the Father's right hand? What's going to stop him from asking the Father for specifically what you need? Nothing. And then the last one, verse 36, or verse 38, excuse me. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else that's created shall be, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is so, one of the ways that God loves you right now is he continues to say, Tim, Holsher is in you. And he shares in your death your burial, your resurrection, your seated position. He's part of this body with all these other believers because Aram's there too. And so is Peggy. And so is Ronnie and so on and so forth. And he fills in, they're there. And he keeps saying that. Now, does he say it exactly like I was saying? No, I'm doing that for illustrative purposes, but you get the point. I'm there because God says I'm there. 
and nothing's going to get him to stop doing it. So how does that help the believer becoming stable? When you learn, number one, that nothing can separate you from the Father's love or the Son's love with regard to these things, and he see, you see that he's given you provision so that you can be free from the sin nature, and the law's not going to help because, yeah, the sin nature is a problem, but there's still no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You stop and you rest in that, and it really begins to cause you to have some ease, some stability in your Christian life, some stability in your relationship with God that you're no longer worried going, is this the day? Is this the day I get kicked out of the body? Hopefully you know better than that. But does this mean, oh, I hope Christ doesn't come back today because if today, boy, I was bad today, I'm really going to stand in that corner now. It's going to be, you know, if it was 10 minutes with my dad when I was a kid, it's going to be a thousand years in heaven for sure. No, you begin to have stability, realizing everything he's doing is done to help bring me and to cause me to bring me and you to where he wants us to be. We could close with one of my favorite, was become one of my favorite verses, the last verse over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where he says over there, when he presents us before the Father, he's going to present us, present us holy and without blame. Father, we're thankful for the provision you make for us to be stable. And that stability comes as we understand who your son is for us now. And we understand who you have made us to be in him. Help that to be something that is becoming an increasing reality for each of us, but also a truth that we hold so precious that we would share it with the so many believers that need to hear this, that need to be encouraged, that need to be stable. We thank you for it, for your grace to us in Christ. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention today. We'll come back next week and we'll tackle... Uh, some benefits of the resurrection. We kind of hit those briefly.